welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I have a wild ride ready for you. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing Delana May, who is a former missionary, among many other things. And uh, I actually read her blog. A friend had sent it to me. Um, It's delanamay.com if you want to check it out. But uh, she tells an incredibly sad and difficult story about her time as a missionary and kind of how that ended and and where she's gone from there. And I knew that I had to get her on here to tell um, tell her story. So I will let Delena uh, introduce herself. Delena, tell us a little about you uh, personally and professionally. Let's see. Um, I'm about to hit my 18th wedding anniversary because I was practically a child bride. So um, I got married right after I turned 20. And then we have four boys who are nine to to 14. So we're entering the middle school and high school. They're, they're really gross and stinky and hilarious. Um, and then professionally, I'm the founder and executive director of a nonprofit um, focused on anti-trafficking in Indonesia, which developed when I was living there as a missionary. We did the overseas missionary thing for about 13 years and um, got out. And luckily, had the foresight to not have that organization tied in any way to a missions organization. So it's just an independent nonprofit and I am still doing that. I'm headed back to school in the fall for a mental health counseling degree. Um, so fun times and yeah. Well, I, I think I had told you this over Facebook, but, um, you and I actually have something in common. So, uh, I am an MK as well, missionary kid, and both of my parents were missionary kids, meaning that my grandparents and parents were both missionaries. Okay. Yeah, same. We moved overseas to Costa Rica and Honduras when I was 11, and so was the MK, did the MK thing until I was, went to college, um, went to college and developed plans to go back overseas, you know, found the the husband that wanted to do the same thing. And then we, I graduated, got pregnant the next month, had a baby, accidentally had twins the year after that. And then we moved overseas to Peru. So um, Peru and then Indonesia. So yeah, just kind of did the whole bouncing around the uh, missionary world for a minute. Yeah. So I, I read your blog posts, the one that's called what happened in Bali actually read the long version (laughs) Bless you. Well, it was amazing. I was like riveted the whole time, like, what's going to happen next? Um, But what I love is that you you talk about so many different facets of religious trauma. And I would just love to get you to tell your story, you know, just lay it out there for us and um, tell us what it felt like, what you experienced. Yeah. Definitely. I'm happy to do that. And yeah, and I mean, definitely think that, you know, nothing is a standalone, right? Like so much of 
my professional story is situated on top of, you know, being an MK and that sort of environment and what's normal. So, but yeah, I was just thinking for your, your guys's podcast and what I'm encountering a lot is, you know, people who got deep into the rabbit hole of the missions context and were like, whoa, <laughs> wait a second. And it's just so isolating because you're overseas. So yeah, I'm happy to, to talk about that. And, um, there's a lot of people that got fired as missionaries and nobody knows about it because nobody talks about it. So, uh, okay. Well, let's see. Um, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor when I was a lot younger. And then by the time I was about 11, my parents decided to move overseas. Um, that was a little rough for me because I remember my dad came home and said, we're moving overseas. And there was no like lead up to it. It was just like, boom, it's happening. You have no choices have sad memories of having to sell all of my babysitter club books, you know, and all this stuff. So, um, went overseas and lived in a pretty small town in Honduras for my teenage years, just pretty isolating. Um, it was a place where there was, and still is a lot of gang violence, a lot of gender-based violence. And so I saw a lot of that, um, you know, happening to my girlfriends and if they weren't getting married when they were 15, they were being abused. So, or both. Um, and then when I moved back to the States, initially had no real interest in moving overseas, but kind of got, um, sucked into this church that was very missions oriented. And so pretty soon I was like, no, you know, be a missionary for Jesus. And, um, met a boy and he had the same interest. He had not ever been overseas before, but he wanted to do missions. And so, we started preparing for that. And so by the time I turned 23, I had three kids and a husband and a degree in intercultural studies from a Bible school. And off we went to the jungle of Peru. Um, and it was there that I think things started changing. Um, I encountered a trafficking situation in the village that we lived in and was like, what is going on? And started looking into it and got a name for that thing that I had been seeing as a kid, you know, with my friends. Um, some of them were being um, trafficked as well. And, and so realized that was something that I felt interested in doing something about helping with. And then I started grad school. My husband started a grad school program at the same time. And it was a little bit more of a progressive seminary. And so we were starting to encounter these like you know, theological perspectives that were very different from the conservative evangelicalism that we had been raised in. And so we're like, what is egalitarianism? I'm like, oh, no, seriously, like, what is that? And it caused a lot of problems with our marriage. He was not super happy with the whole thing. Um, but at the same time, he was realizing I was really miserable being like stuck at home mom. Um, mad respect to women that choose to do that. But for me, it wasn't really a choice. It was like, this is what you have to do. Um, and it was pretty awful. So he, at one point looked at me and said, I don't think you were actually put on this earth to like serve me. And that was a big thing for him to say. That was a big mind shift. And he said, so what are you going to do? <laughs> Crap. I don't know. Um, so we pretty quickly ended up realizing that we didn't want to stay in Peru and this tribal ministry were really my only option was staying at home, taking care of babies and feeding my husband. Um, and I was finishing up a, a degree with a minor in children at risk, kind of the anti-trafficking stuff. And, um, so we got a map out and started looking and ended up working for, um, 
this local uh, organization that was doing anti-trafficking work and kind of supporting their staff, but we were doing it through our missions group, um, which is Pioneers, a major missions organization. I'm happy to name and blame because um, <laughs> they deserve it. So it was interesting because we were with Pioneers in Peru and it was great. Like we had a good experience overall. You know, the, the hard stuff is really just internal and within our family, you know, trying to work out what does life look out, look like for us and what do we want. But when we got to or to Indonesia, there was just a rigidity about the community that had no space for anybody doing anything any differently. And so when we landed there, it was very much, hey, we're both going to work. Um, I'm not going to homeschool my kids. Um, you know, just we had developed a more egalitarian theology. We had developed a more egalitarian relationship, which was very not normal. And so, um, yeah, that was, I think, really rough on the community because we were these outliers. And from the pretty, pretty early on, they didn't quite know what to do with us. So, um, yeah, and we can get into that more too. Um, but suffice it to say, after about five years, um, I had started an anti-trafficking organization that's still running and doing great. Um, but at the end of it, we, for the most part, got kicked off the island. So, um, so yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Um, yeah, so that's the, the long story short. And I'm still involved in the anti-trafficking work in Indonesia, um, leading a, a big coalition of a lot of local organizations. So um, I'm loving that. And in a lot of ways, I'm really thankful that I got kicked off the island because it allowed me to kind of separate out the, you know, humanitarian anti-trafficking work from some of the toxic stuff that was going on in the missions agency and then helping me make sure it was not um, taken over by Western outsiders and instead is continues to be a really like local community led and driven um, process. So, yeah, I'm so glad that you've been able to continue your work there despite, you know, everything that went down. Um, but you mentioned that there were some sort of like toxic scenarios um, that happened. What what kinds of things did you notice? A lot of it was gender roles. Um, some of it is the missions community itself is often takes two forms that I think kind of end up in the same place. You either have this like really hierarchical structure you know, where the home office is telling the people on the field what to do. And so you end up with like really dumb ministries that like are not contextualized to the local culture. And that can cause a lot of issues and um, harm to like your average missionary. But then you have organizations like ours, which were like, no, we are like very bottoms up and the local people, you know, the local missionaries get to decide on their ministries, get to decide what to do. They have a lot of, you know, control and they do. But what that means is if somebody that is incompetent or dangerous or harmful gets put into power, gets given a leadership position, there's not really accountability. There's not really a way to remove them. And I remember um, as kind of our story was unfolding, um, we got fired like as missionaries after we resigned, it was like, you can't resign, we're gonna fire you kind of situation. And another family in protest of what had happened to us, they resigned the day after we got fired. And I remember talking to the husband of that couple and he said, yeah, because the thing is when we got put in place as team leaders, 
our next level up person told us, my job is to back you up in anything you say or do. And he said, it occurred to me, like, that's not a good thing. Like he said it, like it was supposed to make me feel good, but really it was just like, but you shouldn't just blindly say yes to whatever, um, you know, the leader says. And when, you know, different things were happening and I have for people that know Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram eight and it's really obvious. Um, but feel kind of compelled to speak up when something's not working. And so I was seeing, you know, these men in charge and women weren't getting listened to. They weren't, they weren't being paid attention to. And then some things happened on our team and we needed a new team leader and they approached my husband and they're like, Hey, we want you to be the team leader for your team. And, and he said, well, I think it'd be better if it was my wife and I together, we work really well together and, you know, have really good kind of, um, you know, complimentary skill sets. And they're like, Oh yeah, maybe we should do that. And so I got co-assigned with him and this woman who had been a missionary for like 20 years in that area takes me to lunch. And she's like, I need to tell you something. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm pretty new still. And, you know, this is kind of weird, but she said, you need to be really careful because women like you don't last here. Um, you're the only female team leader in this whole area for good reason. Um, and she told me some of the history, you know, before we showed up, there was like a super patriarchal, like quiverful guy, you know, like daughters at home movement guys, super patriarchal that had no place for women leaders. And so on paper, our organization is, you know, we support leaders of all genders and well, not really all genders, but both genders. And, um, you know, we want to develop leadership, but in reality, it was just men picking men, picking men, picking men to, to lead and not a whole lot for women. And so, um, we ended up being underneath the leadership of somebody who was hyper patriarchal. He wouldn't meet with me because I was female. And so, and I said, well, what am I supposed to do? Like I have responsibilities to my team. I'm a leader. I'm also involved in work. That's pretty, um, pretty sensitive. I can't just like randomly meet you at a, you know, the corner cafe and open public to talk about some of the things that we're involved with. And, you know, and there was just all sorts of challenges with that. And anytime I would speak up and challenge, I would get like, just, you know, your, um, too, um, aggressive, you know, like it would just like these labels of you're to this, you're to that. Um, you sound angry, you know, you're, um, not submissive to the the leadership and, and all of these things. And so it got really, really frustrating. And do you think those comments would have been made if you had been a male leader? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, you know, from my vantage point, our team was more integrated into the community than most teams were in part because they wouldn't hang out with us. So we didn't have a whole lot of relationships with the expats in, in the area, because like we just didn't get invited to stuff, you know, and it got to the point where it was ridiculous. You know, we had, we had three boys, um, you know, my oldest three are, were around the same age. And then almost every single other family in our community had a boy the same age. And I'm like, sweet, like, this is good. We have friends. And we would start finding out like all the families, you know, or all the boys went and did something. And my family, my boys were the only ones that didn't go. 
And at first I was like, well, maybe it's because we live a little bit, like we're more urban based or further out of the city. Maybe it's just a demographic thing. But then we got a new uh, family that moved in literally the next street over and their kid, their son would get invited to these things. And my kids still wouldn't. And it was weird. And, and I called it out because that's what I do. And so I called up the team, other team leader. And I'm like, what's going on? Why are my kids like not invited to these things? And there was always a, um, how did my friend put it? Like a reasonable BS answer, you know? And the first time I was like, okay, like generous assumptions, let's just assume the best. But then like it keeps happening. So yeah, we just got socially excluded from a lot, which was painful. But on the other hand, it meant that we were deeply integrated into our Indonesian community. You know, my, my youngest spoke Indonesian before he spoke English and my kids went to Asian school rather than an international school or homeschool, like all the other kids in, in the expat community that we were with. And so, um, I'm really grateful for it, I guess, in a, in a sense, but I think 100% it was because they didn't know what to do with me. And they did also didn't know what to do with somebody that had a different theological perspectives. And that was something I was told directly. There was kind of a grand finale conflict. And in the aftermath of that conflict, the other team leader's wife told me, I just don't like to really talk to people that I know we don't agree with, you know, or I don't agree with because I don't really like conflict. And so I just I just don't talk to people like that. <laughs> Sounds like she picked the wrong job then. Right. But she wasn't a missionary. She was a missionary's wife. And that was very different. Missionaries' wives were supporting their husbands. And this is not what I'm saying as a judgy thing. Like, this is what they told me. And when we had talked about, like, you know, my passion to see women equipped and to be able to lead and, you know, do whatever they're skilled and gifted and desire to do, one of the things that one of the women commented was, but I, I don't want to do anything besides take care of my family. Like I want to just support them. And I was like, fine. Like, I'm not arguing that we're going to pull you out of your home and force you into ministry. You're not interested in doing, I'm saying that there should be an option. And we had recruited another family who ended up leaving shortly after us because it was such a trash heap and we feel terrible about that, but we'd recruited them and, and the dad wanted to stay at home with his kids. And we we're like, great, like, cool, you do that, you know? And, and the wife of the couple was really interested in, you know, working in anti-trafficking. And so I think we did not realize that there was not space for different ways of being, different ways of thinking. You know, to us, it was, you know, we can agree on these important things. And so the rest is gravy, who cares? But that's just not how the rest of the community, I think, really felt. So, you know, it led up to... Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on and a lot of isolation. Um, you know, I would try to approach people. We like systematically invited every family to our house to try to get to know them, like build relationships. And, and I know we didn't do it perfectly. Um, and you know, I know I made people uncomfortable with comments about how I don't like John Piper or whatever, you know, and people just didn't know what to do with those, but, um, Ooh, practically heresy. Oh, it was bad. Yeah. And one woman told me she didn't want me in my house because she thought I would see her John Piper books and judge her and hate her. And I'm like, that's a really big jump for me saying like, I don't like John Piper or his theology to like, I don't want to be your friend because I would see John Piper on your bookshelf. Like that's weird. Um, so it was just a lot of that kind of, I don't know. It was, it was, it was weird. Um, 
But finally in January of 2018, there was this big conference for like all of the missionaries in the country um, to get together on our island um, and, you know, spend a week. And they had this shame researcher come in. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, does a lot of like Brene Brown type stuff, but more from like a Christian perspective. And so he was coming in and talking and I'm like, preach, bro, like preach all of this, you know, because he was talking about how until we can, you know, deal with those issues of shame and things like that in our community, like we can't have healthy relationships and ministry is not going to work and all this stuff. And I was like, yes. And so the women got together one night to discuss things and, um, they kind of went down this path of talking about like areas in which we felt shame or felt rejection and da, 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 And I'm sitting there thinking, should I say anything? <laughs> like, should I just keep my mouth shut? I don't know what to do. And then I was like, no, I think I'm going to go for it. Like nothing's going to change if we don't bring this up. And so I talked for a while, but, um, just without naming any names or, you know, trying to be very, talking about myself and not like you statements, but I say it's like, I feel like, I don't feel I've been here for almost five years. I don't feel welcome. You know, I feel like our family gets ignored a lot. Doesn't get invited to things. I feel like when there are social problems or interpersonal problems, people just run, they leave, like they actually physically leave and go to other islands. Like they leave and go home. Like people just leave. They don't talk about issues when there are issues. And I'm really frustrated because I feel like I've been bringing like these issues of sexism within our community all the way up to the president. Like I had multiple email exchanges with the president of the whole organization, um, as well as the president of the U.S. chapter of Pioneers and just got these like nonsense answers that amounted to nothing. And, you know, and then I talked to my own leader. I just I said, I feel like women are being ignored. They're not being equipped. And there's this great stuff on paper, but it's not happening in reality. And I really hate that. And, um, the next day, you know, the, this is like toward the beginning of the conference the next day, again, made a point to like, talk to each woman that had been there. Like, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just frustrated at the situation and I want to see it better. And I had one woman that even told me, I'm really glad that you brought this up. I want to confess to you that I've avoided you because I feel like I can't compare because, you know, I'm at home with my babies on another Island, you know, just trying to function and survive. And then you're like doing all this cool stuff with the anti-trafficking and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, dude, my kids are older now they're in school. I'm on an Island where there's a grocery store and you're having to like, you know, bake bread from scratch. This is a different thing anyway. And I don't, I don't judge any woman's choices that they need to make or want to make for their family. You know, I'm just advocating, you know, for women to be able to access all of those choices. And anyway, it was a really good conversation because, you know, she said that and in my head, I was like, I know, <laughs> like, this is the problem is I I've known this, I felt this, but then I get called into my boss's office. Um, or it was a conference room and he's like, we need to talk. And I was like, okay. And it was him and his wife. And, um, 
And as soon as this was going down, I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. (laughs) This is going to be bad. And I just had this thing in my gut where I was like, yeah, it's going to get bad. So I found a friend who had come into the conference to teach one of the workshops. Um, She lived in a different part of Asia. And I was like, something's going sideways. Can you be with me? I don't feel safe. And she was like, yeah, of course. And she's kind of high up in the leadership structure. And so she shows up, my husband and I, and then our boss and his wife. And um, it was, you made the women feel bad with what you said. And I was like, okay, cool. But can we talk about the content of what I was discussing? Like these two points that I know we're not going to talk about what you said. The problem is that you said it and you hurt people's feelings. And, um, you know, pretty quickly my husband jumped in and he's like, um, can we just have it on the table that you have a long history of assuming that Delana is angry or being aggressive when she's not angry and she's literally just talking. And he was like, no, I, I'm not going to agree that that is a thing. And, and he's like, you know, I just want you to think about maybe, um, you know, that there's a problem with the fact that you said this and those women are going to need to talk to you and say their piece. And so we want you to go to this thing this afternoon where these women can tell you what they think about what you said. And, and then his wife says, and you're not allowed to say anything. In fact, if you try to talk, I'll give you hand motions so that you're quiet and that you don't talk. And I'm like, in my head thinking that's bizarre, but I'm trying to like, you know, in the moment thinking like, you know, pride goes before the fall. I can still navigate this. I can still make this okay. And I can, you know, win and, and get a hearing is what I wanted. I just wanted to be heard. And like, yeah, I can listen to them and like absorb this. It's fine. And so I said, well, my friend here, you know, if she's, if she's there too, that's fine. As long as she's also in the room, because if you're asking me to say nothing to just absorb anything that's coming and my husband's like, no, this is a witch hunt. No. And I'm like, it's okay. I'll do it. You know? And I was like, as long as she's there. So I have somebody to process with later that was there, but not necessarily like a part of our community had not been at that original meeting. It's fine. And they're like, okay. So we get up to leave. And my friend was the first one out the door. And literally she walks through the door. They physically pull us back and close the door. So now it's just us. And then my boss's boss came in too. And I'm like, oh crap, <laughs> like now what? And then we just did round two. But this one was much meaner, much more aggressive. It was Delaney. I think you have a character problem here. Um, you know, I think the Lord is giving you a chance to really deal with some of your bad leadership. And I'm like, have you talked to my team about my leadership? Have you talked to anybody in the anti-trafficking community? Like we worked really closely with a local nonprofit. Like, have you talked to them? Um, like, I, I don't claim perfection, but I'm not sure that that's the, the real issue here. But they were just like, no. And then I kind of talked about, look, I know it's really hard when like, you know, you encounter perspectives that are different than yours. Like, I've moved a lot of my theology. That's been really hard. You know, the whole deconstruction thing had started. And I was like, I don't want to like push anybody into that. And so like, I want to be really gentle with people. And so I'm just trying to like share my heart about it. And I was told, oh, you think, you know, everything and your theology is right. And everybody else is stupid. I'm like, no, I didn't say that. So it's just like the most like gaslighting conversation ever. And finally, we literally run out of time and leave the room. And, you know, my husband and I were like, sitting in a corner during the lunch break. And he's like, I think we should get our kids and leave. This is just bullshit. 
and this is not okay. And I was like, I feel like if I'm saying when there's conflict, people need to stay in the room that I need to stay in the room. Like I can't run away from this. If that's like one of my big issues is like, we need to have healthy interpersonal conflict in order to have, um, good working relationships. And so I was like, no, I'm going to go to this, you know, like so-and-so is going to be there and, you know, I, I can take it and it'll be fine. And, um, so we go to the next session and 10 minutes into it, I get told by my boss's wife that I need to come outside. She needs to talk to me. And I just like, crap, like here we go again. So I leave my purse with my husband so that I can go back and get my purse and come out. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, so we've decided we don't actually want her with you in the room. It just needs to be with you. And this is a quote. We don't want you to have a friend there because we want people to be able to say what they need to say. (laughs) What? What I said was like, no, no, that's not okay. Whose idea was this? This is insanity. And I'm like, I'm gonna go get my purse. So I walked back in and like, Dan, you know, like come with me. So I grab my husband and my purse. He comes back and then it's like my boss's wife and then their boss's wife. And these two women who have no actual like um, power in the organization on paper, but the way the missions community works is they're as good as their husband. Another kind of toxic issue in the missions community. Like she literally is like, I only want to be a wife and mom. Then why are you sticking your nose into the business side? Like, I don't, you can't have it both ways, but there she is pretending to speak for the boss or speaking for the boss. I'm not even really sure. And, and then her boss's wife, you know, telling me I'm going to have to go face a firing squad and I can't even talk or defend myself. I just need to hear. And I'm like, okay, this is a hard no for me. So for 45 minutes, I'm arguing with these two women in the hallway, telling them no. And they're like, and this is why you have to do it. And this is why you're going to do it. I'm like, no, no, no. Wait, why were they like so dead set on it? All they would say is they felt like the women would not be totally honest with me if I had somebody who was my friend in the room, which clearly is giving like, you're saying that they are not my friends. Like you're that's, there's some statements in there. And it Um, seems obvious that they were rigging it in their own favor rather than in yours by depriving you of an ally. No, it was just bonkers. And so they're like, well, maybe we should pray about it. So they bow their heads and I look straight at my husband. I'm like, I don't need to pray about this. Like I just kind of mouthed him. He's like, yeah, this is dumb. So we just stand there waiting for them to talk to God and let them, you know, decide that God has said it's okay. And so they get done and I just kind of look at them. They're like, well, I think it's okay if she's there. Like, okay, cool. So anyway, long story short, I ended up in this room and I don't remember a whole lot because at that point I had like a raging headache and like a migraine and like was super nauseous and like having all these like bodily responses to that whole longest day of my life. Um, But it was very much kind of, that was when the, the woman had said, you know, I just don't like to have relationships with people that I don't agree with. Um, and it was, it was weird. Mostly it was just weird. Yeah. No kidding. So coming off of that, my friend who had told me in the beginning, you need to be careful with this community. It's pretty toxic. Um, you know, she had managed to survive for 20 years by being under the radar and just not speaking up. Um, but she's, you know, pretty hardcore, like egalitarian feminist and stuff like that. So it's just kind of funny that, she lasted, but she kept her mouth shut and I don't. And I think that was the difference. 
but anyway, she called me and I kind of told her what it all had happened. And she said, you know, in this community, Delana, when you stand up to your leader, the leader always wins. It's like a bus against a motorcycle. It doesn't matter if the motorcycle had the right of way, it would get creamed. Um, and that was the image that she painted. And, and so it's like, I don't know what to do. Like, I know that I could say the contrite things, everything would go away and it would all be okay. Um, you know, I'm so sorry. I made all those women sad and I could say that and it would go away. Everything would go away. But I was afraid that it was just going to keep happening to other people. I was pretty sure by that point, just whispers and rumors and stuff that it had happened to other people, particularly women before me. Um, and that's been confirmed, um, very similar, eerily similar situations. And, um, I was like, I don't know in my integrity, if I cannot do something here, like I can't just call this out and name it no matter what the cost is and had a pretty good idea. In fact, our joke within my, my marriage was that I was going to get aspired one day. And we joked about that for years because I was always like, but this, you know, like, what about this and wanting to make things better and not just people don't like that. So anyway, eventually we met with our leader whom we had had the issues with. And I said, look, what, well, and my friend had said that what, what happened was abusive. And when she said that, I was like, I've read books, like I'm no therapist, but I've read, you know, the spiritual abuse books and I have friends that work in, you know, religious trauma and stuff like that. And I actually emailed one. I'm like, here's the situation. Am I overthinking this? And she's like, no, that's yeah, that was pretty abusive. You were stuck. She had power over you. You know, you're powerless to do anything like that's traumatic. And so I told my boss, I'm like what your wife did was spiritually abusive and it was not okay. And we need to get somebody else in here. And he agreed. So he called his boss. And so they basically activated and I had a choice. I could either activate a mediation protocol or I could activate uh, an investigation of abuse protocol. And my perspective was, and I kind of don't wish I'd done it differently now, but my perspective was it wasn't malicious. She's ignorant. She didn't know what she was doing. It was an incompetency issue and she was overstepping her role, not a malicious thing. And so, you know what, let's do the mediation. It's fine. That was a bad idea. So I waited for a couple of weeks and didn't hear anything back. Didn't hear anything back. And I had told, you know, my, my good friend that had kind of been working with other feminists, you know, all of this stuff. So she was hearing about this. And then one of my teammates whom we actually have known forever, he was in Peru with us. And so they kind of knew the depths of it from my perspective. And, but I get this call from my boss's boss who says, you need to stop using the word abuse. You're not allowed to say that. And I was like, um, yeah, you're not going to tell me what I can and cannot say. Yeah. That's such an abusive thing to even say. Right. Right. You can't say that word. It makes people feel uncomfortable. You know, your boss is I'm like, yeah, it was really uncomfortable to be abused actually. So, but I just like, at that point I was just done. I was like, this is just complete crap. And I was like, look, I am not going around announcing this to everybody because why would I, they don't talk to me Remember, like that's kind of part of the issue, but I will continue to talk about this with my two close friends because I need support. And it's been two weeks since I like asked for any, nobody's contacted me. So no, I'm going to actually continue using this word. And he like tried to put the kibosh on it, which is like not having it. So then I said, so for this mediation, I want to make sure we have counselors who are trained and who are not associated with 
pioneers. And they're like, no problem. We're going to fly somebody from New Zealand. It's like, cool. So another month goes around and we finally get to this date. These people show up and come to find out they're with pioneers. They're freaking pioneers counselors. And I'm like, okay, well, can this still work? And again, I feel like so many times I just should have stepped out and just said, I'm done. But, you know, in the middle of it all, I'm going, maybe it won't be so bad. Luckily for me, I've been seeing the same therapist for, you know, years and years and years. And she is a religious abuse survivor on the mission field as well. And so she's like, okay, here's what's probably going to happen next. I'm like, no, nobody's that mean. And then it would like inevitably happen, you know? So she was amazing. And she was like, no, no to the mediation. And she's like, this is terrible. I'm like, no, it'll be okay. And she's like, okay, I'll talk afterwards, you know? Um, and it was a sham and we got in there and this guy who has a license, he's, you know, in New Zealand has a license, but he says, you know, we need to think about what we have that needs to be forgiven. Oh, brother. And I was like, time out, time out, because you came here under the understanding that I'm saying that there's an abuse and you're telling me who at this point is saying I've been abused. I need to look for what I need to be forgiven for. That's a big fat no for me. And um, so we had to talk through that. And then we spent like half the morning because um, the, our bosses really didn't want to proceed unless the word abuse was no longer used. And I didn't, didn't talk to anybody in Pioneers at all about anything related to what had happened or anything in the mediation. And I basically had to negotiate for the right to debrief and process with my good friend who happened to be in pioneers. Um, and you know, and I, to this day have never disclosed some of the stuff that they talked about that was personal to them that I think impacted their, the way that they handled the situation out of respect for that. But at this point, I'm like, I will talk about my side, like your whole non-disclosure. They were basically trying to get me to do an NDA. Um, about my experience and not one that was written, but just kind of on the honor system. And I just, at this point, rejected the whole thing. And even talking to my counselor, I'm like, can they do that? Can they tell me I'm not allowed to talk to somebody? Is that what an NDA is? She's like, no, that means they're not supposed to talk about it. Here's the irony. My boss's boss later told me, I hope you don't mind. I've discussed all of this with my, with my wife. And I'm like, you just made like a half a day thing about me not being able to talk about what happened to me with my friend. And you're going to go talk about what happened to me with your wife. Like, this is insane. What a power play. Like, not even acknowledging the double standard. It was such a power struggle. And so what came out of it in the end was that we were going to basically not be underneath our original bosses, at least for a season, and just work directly with the boss boss, um, the boss's boss, which, you know, at that point, I wasn't a big fan of his either, but felt a lot better about that than working with the guy that we had some issues. And I was like, okay, this will give everybody a chance to get some space. And at this point, like, I don't need the missions community anyway. Like I'm pretty much completely in the Indonesian community working in anti-trafficking. They don't have a whole lot to say about anything that I'm doing because I don't know anything about anti-trafficking, right? Like my mentors are other people in the anti-trafficking movement. My peers are Indonesians. Like a lot of my interaction with the missions agency was just like for fundraising and like admin type stuff. So I'm like, cool. Like basically you leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. I'll keep getting money and insurance through the organization. And that's about it. So that was by this time it's March. 
And then about a week later, we had our first meeting with um, the boss boss, you know, to just talk about stuff. And I had been asked to help start a trauma center for uh, victims of child sexual exploitation and trafficking. And, you know, my degree supported that. I had to buy in at the community. It was basically getting seconded to another organization. So I was like super jazzed about this. And I had sent him this whole proposal about it. And like, here's my background. Like we've prayed about this. Our supporters know about this. I've checked all my boxes. He gets on the phone and he says, I'm not going to allow you to do that because instead I want you to go to this intensive um, therapy. You need to move back to California for a season and go to this intensive therapy to work on your leadership skills. And I said, well, a couple of things. One, um, have you talked to anybody on my team or anybody that I've actually led about my leadership skills? You're making some assumptions here. And I knew that he hadn't because they told me and they were going, why hasn't he asked us? Why hasn't he asked us? You're an amazing leader. Like, you know, your conflict resolution in this situation or this, like, would they just need to ask us? And he's like, no, I'm not doing an investigation here. I was like, okay, well, how about I leave? Because I actually have been recruited by another organization, a secular organization. So I can just leave pioneers and then we don't have this problem anymore. And he goes, well, in that case, I'd like your husband and kids to California to do intensive work on his leadership skills. I was like, okay, so this is a BS and B our kids go to year round school. Like you're asking us to take them out of school and we have to pay for this, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. There's another program that's in Thailand that we could go to. There's remote options, but none of these things were considered. It was just getting us out of Indonesia. And we're like, can we put you on hold for a second? And so we muted it and we looked at each other and we both were like, why would we stay? Like the only reason we would stay in pioneers is to continue to do the work that we're doing. And if we're not even going to be able to do that because they're literally yanking us out of the country, like there's no reason to stay. So we got back on and we said, we're done. We resigned. We're going to quit. And um, we'd like to quit and leave as soon as the kids are out of school in July. And so he said, okay, that's, you know, hope you'll reconsider. Let me know in a week. We're like, okay, we'll let you know, Um, you know, and basically scrambled to, to start making plans to leave. And then we wanted to do uh, basically trauma therapy and some recovery stuff. And we knew we did not want to do it with pioneers that did not feel safe. Um, I found out since then that oftentimes their counselors, when they're working with people internationally, will actually report to the administration the contents of their counseling session. So I've had that verified. Um, I think they can get away with it because it's an international context. I think that's illegal if it's in the U.S. That is a massive ethical violation, though. Super unethical. So, you know, I'm glad we were like, yeah, no, for pioneers. Um, And we found a place that did it in Colorado. And so we contacted them. We're like, okay, how can we make this happen? We need to do our like post field debriefing, which is pretty normal. And they're like, well, you'll just have to raise the money for it. So we're kind of left with like, okay, we need to tell people like, we need this. How do we communicate? We need this. I don't want to share this whole story with everybody. I don't think it's appropriate. And so we just said, you know, some inappropriate things have been happening. Um, Our children have been pretty impacted because their best friends lived the next street over. And when all of this started going down, 
their parents who were really good friends of ours or had been told us, we don't like what's happening. We don't want to speak or associate with your family anymore. Your kids can't come to our house. Our kids won't be at your house. And they played together every day and we're not going to carpool with you anymore. And they had started going to my kid's school. And so it was just like this break. And so my kids had a lot of like, what did we do? You know, they were our friends and my, you know, the youngest was like four and his best friend disappears overnight. So he's like throwing tables and tantrums and nightmares. So clearly they've experienced some stuff too. And, and so we just told our supporters, like our kids have experienced trauma. Like we're, we're wanting to go get some counseling. This is the money we need to raise. This is what's going on. So we got a reprimand from the human resources department who basically were like, you know, you can't, you can't say that, um, in your messaging to people. And we're like, yeah, but we did. And we are, cause it's the truth. Wow. Once again, trying to control the language you were using. Right. Because from there, what, what he said was, you know, if that's the case, then you need to activate the child protection protocol. And you didn't report that your children you know, and I'm like, I write child protection protocols. Like my degree program is in children at risk. Like you are misusing that label. Children can be traumatized without being abused. These kids have not been abused by anybody. There's nothing to report, but they're observing their world fall apart and they're traumatized by it. But they just, and, and then what was really funny was I knew the child protection officer in our region and she said, nobody ever contacted me. So if they are you know, following a protocol and they think you didn't follow the protocol. The next step is they need to activate the protocol and they didn't do it either. So, I mean, it was just full. And, um, so we just kind of continued finishing up our work, trying not to die. Like It just felt like every week we would leave every weekend to go to like this, like super remote little bungalow on the beach and just hide. You're just like 30 bucks a night. We're like, okay, we're going to go hide for 30 bucks a night for the weekend. So we can survive the week and not die. Um, and you know, we're packing up our house. Everybody stopped speaking to us for the most part. There was, you know, our team teammates and, um, the, the friend that I mentioned before the feminist and her family, and they were the only people that kept talking to us. Um, everybody else, it was just like completely ghosted us. So, you know, we're packing up a home for an international move. And usually there's like this big going away party. Like that's kind of standard that we had nothing. Nobody, nobody was there. And our friends had actually gone on home assignment, um, too. So we were, it was like us and our one teammate. Um, that were still speaking to us. Another of a couple of our teammates left our team because I don't know, I think the home office called them. I don't know. They just got sucked into it. I still don't understand what happened. It went from like, we love you. You're the best. And literally in one day, I never want to talk to you again. And we're not going to be on your team anymore. We're like, what happened? I mean, at the very least, they had to have seen what was going on and not wanted to be next on the list. Right. And that's my most generous assumption, you know, and on this side, we found out a lot of stuff that there had been, you know, another leader. And it was weird because we had gotten a couple of calls, even from people that had been nasty to us saying, Hey, will you help us with this? We don't know what to do about this. And I had told one of the people that had called me that had ghosted us for a while. And then in this one instance, like reaches out and it's like, Hey, I'm struggling with this issue. I'm being put into like leadership and I'm still in language school. I don't know what to do. And I was like, you need to tell your leader, no, you're allowed to say no. She's trying to give you responsibilities that you shouldn't hold right now. You're brand new. You know, we had been scheduled to help another family move in. We'd recruited them and we were going to help them move in. And then we were told we weren't allowed to talk to them, you know, this new family, because I don't know, like we were going to like poison them or something. I don't know. Like literally we want to help them install their toilets. You know, like that's what we want to do. You know, you can't do that. I want you to stay away. And found out that that leader 
had gone to our boss's boss and said, I want them fired. I want them out. They're making me uncomfortable. Um, so, because we had told her team that they could tell her no, you know? Um, so it was just, it was just this mess. It was such a mess. And there were so many things going on, but finally one night I had this dream. It was on June 17th. I went to sleep and I had this dream that we were, and my family was in this, like, um, like a big canoe basically. And we are rowing away from Bali, trying to get away as fast as we can, because there's a bomb that's about to explode on Bali Island. That was where we lived. And we just had to get away. And then in the dream, the bomb went off and then it like blacked out. And then I woke up and I'm just trying to pull all my family out of the rubble. Like I'm trying to get my four boys and my husband are buried. I'm just trying to get everybody out. And that, that was the dream. That's horrible. And so the next day we had a required meeting with our boss's boss who flew in to talk to us. And I thought what he was going to tell me was that, um, that they didn't want anybody in pioneers working for my organization, Dark Bali, because I had recruited a couple of people that were new. They were in language school. They were going to be working with the anti-trafficking organization. And that's not what he said. It was kind of inside of it, but he said, you're fired effective immediately. We were three weeks from leaving, three weeks from leaving. He's like, you're fired effective immediately. And I still have the paperwork, but, you know, but what I remember was basically for causing disunity in the community. And what it meant practically was we lost our evacuation and medical insurance. And it meant that, um, the three months of transitional pay that we would have had when we got back to the States, you would get three more months of salary. We didn't get it. Um, and so like all of a sudden we're like in a deep financial hole thinking we would have like money and, and the ability to get back on our feet. So that was just ripped away really quickly. And, and then, you know, embedded in that was as long as you're leading the organization, pioneers have nothing to do with it. Nobody's allowed to participate in any of the work, which is kind of like a real, I feel sad about it, but that was kind of their decision. And it's still, you know, created some problems for some people that have come in wanting to work in anti-trafficking because they're not allowed to touch us. Um, yeah, it was just really ugly. So we kind of went home shell shocked and like, like we're literally packing bags. So I guess we're just leaving and taking the hit and, um, got back to the States and, you know, that was four years ago now. Um, my husband started medical school a couple of years later. So now we're in medical school and then I've continued um, to run the organization, which is growing. We have a local staff in Indonesia and I do kind of more of the like big picture global partnerships and admin and, and those things. And then she's just running the show locally. So um, I feel like we've landed on our feet and we've both done the pretty hard, like religious deconstruction stuff. Um, my husband ended up with some pretty bad PTSD Um tried to go to church a couple of times and would like have panic attacks in the middle of church and couldn't do it. Even like we went to like an Anglican and we just stopped going because the anxiety and, um, and then he's kind of, uh, moved toward a pretty firm agnosticism. Um, I am more of a, uh, what did I call myself one time? An uncertaintist. Like, I don't know. And I don't really care. Like, thank God's real um, appreciate the person of Jesus, but I think we've boxed God pretty hard. And so I think, you know, that's 
the whole experience has been a real, um, it's been the gasoline for a lot of that kind of deconstruction. And it had started before all of this happened, but definitely I think pushed us further and faster um, away from religious community and structure um, and more toward more of a, like a universal spiritual kind of perspective. At least for me, my husband is very much like, yeah, if God's real, he's kind of a jerk and I'm not interested. So yeah, so that is the high level story. I feel like it's a really long one, even though there's so much I left out, but. um. What a heartbreaking story. So much pain was inflicted on you simply because you wouldn't keep quiet. Yeah, it was, it was, there's a lot of cruelty involved. And, you know, like I said, I've been working with a therapist you know, luckily I'd started early on just when working in anti-trafficking, like you involved and see so much yucky stuff. I knew pretty early on, like self-care includes some like regular therapy. So she's been working with me. I mean, we meet monthly and, and sometimes more often when things are going down and that's been really, really big to kind of be pulling apart stuff and, and realizing how much, even from like growing up and a very conservative patriarchal context where I just was told, you know, I know a lot of people here like that. You're not enough thing for me. It was never a, you're not enough. It was always, you're too much. You're too much. You're too much. You're too much. Um, you know, you're too loud. You're too dominant. You're too assertive. You're even like, gosh, this past Thanksgiving, I was talking with my sister about, you know, the patriarchy and my dad's listening in and we, you know, are having a conversation with him and I'm like, whatever, you know, I'm not, I don't feel emotionally connected to this, but she's definitely got a lot more emotions in. And so she's like, kind of yelling and upset. And my dad turns to me and says, you know, you're a real dominant and domineering woman. And I kind of looked at my sister and she goes, dad, why are you picking on her? She's not even like involved in this. And I was just like, what the heck? And then the next day I was talking to my sisters and my brother and my other sister said, but you've always been the family punching bag. And my brother said, it's because everybody knows that you won't walk away, that you'll stay and you'll work it out. And if somebody says something really mean, you give them grace. And so when we're mad at each other, we just like triangulate to you and like get mad at you because the other person it'll cause problem. But with you, you'll just like stick around and work it out. And I'm like, well, that seems very unfair, doesn't it? Um, It is unfair. So often women are punished in religious groups for being assertive. And, you know, that may not all be on religion. Partially it's just patriarchy, but it's so unfair. That whole dysfunctional family thing that I have for my family of origin, I see it mirrored in the situation in Indonesia. And, you know, I'm still working through, like, is that my fault? Like, do I have this, like, something on my forehead, like, Hey, it's okay. Pick on me. I won't be mean back to you. You know, um, kindness is a high value. And, but on the other hand, I look back at it. And while there are things that I regret looking at what I didn't know and how I handled it, like we were kind, like we were kind, we were consistently like trying to reconcile with people, assuming the best over and over, like offering a hand, trying to work it out not bad mouthing people. And I feel like I came out with my integrity, um, which is really, really big, but it wasn't free. Wow. What a story. You know, something that came to mind while you were talking was just the irony of all of that happening while your group was trying to help victims of human trafficking. 
Because like they put so much effort into silencing your voice, separating you from your support system. I mean, you got to see the irony there. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's astute. And I think, you know, I've, I've not published anything about it, but I've written a little bit about how I see the dynamics of abuse very clearly in a lot of church settings, but especially in the mission field. Um, It's just, it's there. And you have this, even the, like the back and forth of like being harmed and then being like told how wonderful you are, you know, I'll bring you flowers the next day. Like that sort of thing happens. And, and the degrading of your own sense of self-worth so that you can be abused, you know, like how many times I was told I'm this or that. And I remember one time, kind of when I made the transition into full-time anti-trafficking work, I was at an anti-trafficking conference in Thailand and I had just had the best time, like stayed up really, really late at this restaurant with a whole bunch of colleagues. And this was a very secular, you know, scenario. And, you know, and they had all these questions and like, were interested in my work and just, they were being normal. But to me, it was like, my God, they were so respectful. And they were so like, they treated me like a professional and like, I had something intelligent to say and like, they were listening to my answers and, and I went to bed super late and I just started crying. And so I'm like, okay, why am I crying? Like what's going on here? And I remember thinking, I forgot what it was like to be liked. I haven't felt liked in my community for a really long time in Indonesia And, you know, I was kind of praying about it and just felt like I had this thing where God was like, you're not a missionary anymore. You're not like, this is your community now. And I think that was like the beginning of my like walk away from pioneers and, you know, all this happened before all the other stuff went down. But I think I'm really grateful because I think it gave me a little bit of distance from it because for me, and I think that's why it was really hard for my husband more in the aftermath than me, because I had already left the identity of missionary and he was still very much a missionary that got fired. And I was somebody that was working for a missions agency that got fired. And that was really, really, really different. Um, But I think some of the struggle when you experience toxicity or religious abuse or spiritual abuse on the mission field is it costs you everything, you know, like if it happens in a church context, but you know, in your home, you you don't lose your home. Like you get to live in the same house. You might lose a job if you're in ministry, but you know, you might not be in ministry. You wouldn't lose your job. Like your kids don't have to change schools. You don't lose your entire social network. And, but when it happens overseas, your option is to stay and continue just submitting to the abuse or pretending like it's not abuse or you can leave. And generally when you leave, you're leaving your home, you're leaving the work that you've invested yourself into. You're leaving your financial stability. You're leaving your social community. Your kids are leaving their school. Like we geographically had to relocate. And, you know, some people are like, can you do a parallel hop to a new organization? You can, but from what I've heard, it costs you about 15% of your financial support because people just don't bother moving with you. And then you have all the drama surrounding it. But what's really interesting about pioneers is in the aftermath, I've had several ex-pioneers people reach out to me. One of the women was in our, my same area and she's still a missionary um, 
in Indonesia and did a parallel jump and it, it worked out for her, but she and I got on the phone and she goes, I'm so glad when they told you to go back overseas or go back to the States to get therapy that you said, no, she says, let me tell you my story. And she had a similar experience, strong woman, deeply invested in ministry, you know, butted heads with the, the, um, the leader. And they told her the same thing. You need to go to California to get this, this therapy. So she goes and does like, it was an insane amount. It was like 200 hours of therapy. I mean, I think it took them like, like full time basically for a year, you know, it was just an absurd amount of therapy. And she said, they got to the end of it. And the therapist said, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, I think this is an interpersonal issue with your leadership. And that's what he wrote. And so pioneers came back and said, we'd like to get a second opinion. We're going to start all over again with a different set. And so they, they did it again. And then at the end of that one, they got told the same thing. And at that point they quit. So we're not going to go to a third. And she said, I've seen this with other people as well. This is the strategy that they used to get you out of there and basically wear you out until you quit. So I'm so glad you just quit early, you know, and you didn't put up with this. Oh, wow. You know, but for them, like it took a lot of years to get back to stable because you've kind of invested in this whole system and, you know, you have all of your, your life is kind of wrapped up in this agency, whether it's like your finances, your insurance, but even your community, right? Like family is an ocean away. This is supposed to be your family away from family. And then all of a sudden, you know, you lose all of it. So um, yeah, it's pretty rough. I've heard a lot of stories that I think are actually much worse than my own, um, from the mission field, from people who've experienced, you know, spiritual and religious abuse and some people, other kinds of abuse on top of that. Wow. You know, it's so incredible that despite all that, you've managed to continue your work in, in anti-trafficking instead of doing what I'm sure would have been the easier route of just giving up. If, if other folks out there are in ministry in some capacity and they're, you know, noticing maybe some of those red flags, what advice would you give them knowing what you know now? I think I would take advantage of modern technology and get some professional opinions. Um, it was huge for me. And, and I was just lucky to know people because of my work in anti-trafficking, there's so much, you know, relationship to abuse and stuff like that. So I had people that I knew that I could reach out and be like, what is this? So even my therapist, like, you know, she's sitting there like reading definitions to me and I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that, that's what happened, you know? And, you know, if you can find a professional licensed, <laughs> definitely licensed, not a Christian counselor, like an actual licensed professional, um, or, you know, there's, different organizations I know that are focused on it that have even just watching a webinar, you know, and getting some definitions to hold your experience up to and going, hmm, is this what's going on? And I think it's really huge. And I think, and I think that continues to be the same thing on the other side of it. Again, I think, I don't know that it's so much that, you know, I'm particularly strong or whatever. I think we've been really fortunate to have a little bit of knowledge about what was going on to it when it was happening. And so we were able to name it as it was happening rather than, you know, being destroyed by it and then having to go back and start naming it and understanding it in a new way. But like we spent a week, my husband and I sent my kids to grandparents house and spent a week in trauma therapy with like EMDR. And like, you know, like we were very serious about getting professional help because, you know, we were seeing the panic attacks and we knew what that was. And, and, I think 
we are so lucky that there are more and more people that understand religious trauma as a real thing. And I think a lot of people think of trauma as like this event, you know, like you got assaulted or there was a natural disaster, you know, or you watch somebody die or whatever. And that is trauma. But I think we're understanding more and more that religious trauma is a chronic trauma. It's like the slow drip, right? And for me, I'm realizing it's not even just what happened in Bali. It was being told my whole life that if I stepped out of line, I was going to burn in hell. And it was, you know, that God was not pleased with me as I was made. You know, my original sin was not even just original sin, but like, you know, being a woman essentially was like kind of a negative thing too. And so, you know, seeing those things as having just as much impact on your body, mind, and soul as an assault. Um, you know, and the research is bearing that out. So I think being really gentle with ourselves and, you know, a lot of times I think, how would I act or what would I tell a friend if they told me that they had been assaulted and now they're struggling with something like this? Like I can say the same things to myself. And so I know I need a lot more solitude now. And I used to be like the most extroverty extrovert. I know I'm still very, very afraid of friends and having relationships. I didn't like get a new friend for at least a year. Like I didn't want to talk to anybody new. Um, I know that I can't ever go to church again. And that's even if I wanted to, I don't think I could safely ever do that in any kind of context. So there's a lot of loss and sometimes I'm angry and sometimes I grieve that. I think, yeah, there's huge impacts of it. And I think because I work often with survivors of assault, you know, in the trafficking context, I can see how some of my, the strongest, most amazing people I know are still dealing with the wounds and the scars from their experience. And I've come to accept, not like, but accept that that is always going to be true of me too. Landing on my feet doesn't mean I'm okay. Now landing on my feet means I'm going to keep going and work through the parts that aren't okay. And so, you know, I have a few really close girlfriends where I have to tell them like, I'm afraid you're leaving me. Like, I'm afraid you're running from me. Like I, I, you know, have to have those conversations. And even between my husband and I, you know, we had a situation even just this past month where, um, his mom gave one of my kids a super evangelical book talking about, you know, he's going to burn in hell for this and that and anti LGBT and like super high purity culture. And we had to sit and talk through it with them. And I got really pissed. I'm like, why is this trash in my house? Like nobody asked me if this could come in my house she'd asked my husband and he was like, whatever, you know, we'll just talk to him about it. And I'm like, you didn't even talk to me. Like, I don't want to see that book in my house. It's trash. It's dangerous. And my kids already have all this existential fear and stuff anyway. So, you know, and I think there's interpersonal issues between us because of what happened. And, you know, my kids deal with a lot of crap. I see in one of my sons in particular, fear of relationships and he throws up walls real fast and they changed. They're not who they were before all of this happened. And, um, so I think, you know, there's definitely consequences and to me landing on my feet doesn't mean that we just like went back to the way it was before. And I am who I was before. It means accepting that I'm not and choosing to let this new version of me be an okay version. And, and, learn to love that and live within the parameters of it, if that makes sense. Mm, 
that was a beautiful description of trauma recovery. I, I really resonate with that. Um, I can also tell you've done a lot of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a lot of therapy. So much therapy. Uh, I can hear those <laughs> therapy words. I, I also just wanted to affirm that you're not alone, you know, like that, that's a sad thing that so many of us who have lived and worked in ministry can relate to your story, but you know, at least, at least we're not doing it alone. And this is a thing that we can talk about and and share. So we are kind of at the end of our time, but something that I'm trying to do with all of our guests is uh, end on a lighter note by um, talking about some kind of humorous or, you know, like ironic experience when it comes to religious culture. Uh, does anything come to mind? Oh, God. Um, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of them around like sex and purity culture and stuff like that. Trying to think of a, a funny one. Give me a minute. Um, okay, so this I, maybe it's not funny, but my husband and I were literally talking about this last night, you know, because we've kind of moved pretty far away from a lot of like purity cultural I- ideas and are raising our children quite different, you know, more of a like consent based sexuality than um, anything. But anyway, we were joking around last night in bed and he, he was telling me, he's talking about his old girlfriend. He's like, yeah, you know, like I groped her. And I was like, wait, hang on. Like you, you like grabbed her boobs. He's like, yeah, we did a little like, you know, boob touching and stuff. And, and I was like, hang on when we were 18 and thinking about getting married, we had to work through the fact that you felt so offended that I had like made out with my boyfriend and that he had groped me and you had to forgive me for that. And you did the exact same thing, but it was totally fine that you did it. And he's like, yeah, because, you know, if you're a girl and you're good, you're a harlot. <laughs> I just died laughing. I'm like, yeah, harlot? What a double standard. A double standard. Oh my gosh. And we did. Like, I remember he was so upset. And even though I have like no regrets from that relationship at all, I'm like, it was a great learning relationship that I had. But for him, like somebody had touched his property, you know, it was fine that he was touching somebody else's property, but it was not okay that somebody had touched his property. And, you know, this is so completely ridiculous. Uh, well, I sure hope the two of you repented after all that boob touching. Uh, yeah, it's the worst. <laughs> Uh, you got to love purity culture. But you know what? Here's the thing. I went to Bible school and my parents, I will say, did a really good job of talking about sex from early on and regularly. Like they did a really good job. So I don't feel like I was nearly as impacted by purity culture, having been raised overseas away from like the youth group culture. And my parents were like, just, I think a lot healthier about attitudes towards sex. Um, but I go to Bible school and I got this reputation in the dorm of somebody that would talk about sex. And so there were a few girls on my floor who would not be in the room if I was there. Like they would leave. So this is a theme of my life, right? Like, because something would come up and I would talk about sex and that was so inappropriate. And I had one girl who came up to me during my, this is my sophomore year of college. And it's like, I'm really uncomfortable that you're using tampons because, you know, you know, you lose your virginity if you use a tampon. And I'm like, that's not what happened. Oh my gosh. I've heard this one and too. And then I had my RA who is a 22 year old woman. She was getting ready to get married and she pulls me aside and she's like, Hey, I want to talk to you because 
I know that you'll be honest with me and I don't know how else to get this information. I was like, okay. She goes, can you tell me how many holes I have down there? What? Wait, what? And I'm just like, oh my God, <laughs> like we're at the point, like we don't even know basic biology. I'm like, honey, I will get you a mirror, you know? <laughs> oh no. About to get married. So yeah, there's a lot of stories like that. Um, quick side note, I remember there being a big scandal among the other MKs in the Philippines when a couple of people started using tampons and it was like, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? I heard that she uses tampons. Gross. She's lost her virginity for sure. No. Like that's definitely a thing that was like going around apparently. (laughs) Tragic. Well, Delena, I appreciate you so much taking the time to be here. You have just such a powerful message and I really appreciate your willingness to be vulnerable and and tell your story and offering your story as a lifeline for other people. Especially like with the missionaries and stuff, we actually put together a website, uh, me and another ex-pioneers traumatized missionary um, called Recovering Missionaries. And it's just like a resource site for people because we just keep hearing other people from all sorts of different missions contexts that are struggling and looking for resources. And so Um, I know that there's a lot of people out there. There's just so much shame around it. And I think for me, just like with survivors in our anti-trafficking network, be able to say there's no shame in being a survivor of human trafficking. Like this wasn't your fault. And to say that it happened to you is should not be a shameful thing to do. And I think the same with, you know, experiencing religious trauma and all the consequences of that. I think there's still so much shame around it. And I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. So I'm like, yes, I got fired as a missionary and that was not okay. You know, like it was not my fault. It was mean. And it was a product of all sorts of toxicity. Um, and then also even just like, you know, I think deconstruction, faith deconstruction is situated really hard in religious abuse. I mean, I'm sure you see that too. Like, it's just, you feels like you can't have one without the other. Um, you know, if there's abuse, there's going to be some sort of deconstruction process. And I want, like, I want my kids to just build their faith. I don't want to have, I don't want to hand them something that they have to deconstruct, you know, like I want, I want them to have a really healthy relationship with religion and faith. And I also want my kids to have space to explore and, you know, like, rather than have something that I'm like, and here's your faith that they then have to pull apart, you know, when they're my age. So yeah, consent is important for belief systems yeah, too. Yeah, well said. Well said. Well, have a good rest of your evening. It was good to talk to you. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Take care. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me at Anna at EmpathyParadigm.com. Bye. Bye.